Welcome back to the Buddy Ruski Show. This is episode seven. Uh, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus as I transition into a new job. So thank you for being patient and sticking with us. Uh, we are going to switch up the recording cadence a little bit moving forward. Uh, this still is a one-man band, so uh, you know the time it takes to record the show, to prep for the show, edit the show publish the show, all that good stuff that goes into um, this great project that we have here. I, I want to continue to, to give the quality um, that you've seen from this show and just my work in general. So uh, with that, to, to be able to do that, uh, we may switch to a bi-weekly schedule as opposed to the weekly schedule that we've been on, uh, or at least that we were on for some time. Uh, also, if you haven't already, definitely go check out uh, the American Underground page uh, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited uh, to be working with them as the marketer in residence and having an opportunity to really, you know, have have the have the chance to to speak to the tech scene here in a different way and give voice not only to the companies and the brands that are in this space, but, but also to, um, you know, shed some light on the people behind the companies and, and have the community here really understand the types of people that are moving to Durham, what they bring to this community. Uh, you know, I and my guests today uh, have both been skeptics of some of the change that's happening in Durham and in the community at large. And uh, over time, I, I still carry that same skepticism, but I've tried to have a more open mind about what this community can be. Um, you know, we, um, especially folks who are, uh, you know, self-identifying progressives, uh, like to think that America is a place that people of all walks of life can come and participate in, whether they're, um, you know, fleeing uh, turmoil in their own countries or just see this country that we love as, as a place of opportunity and, and a place with rich culture and diversity and, uh, the, you know, they want to get plugged into that. And so I try to keep that same mentality uh, as a citizen of Durham, a, a longtime citizen of Durham and someone that believes in, you know, power in numbers and uh, community and learning from one another. And so uh, with all that to say, there's some really, really interesting people and things being built in the American Underground. And I hope in my new position there that I can shed some light on all that activity. So if you appreciate any of the work that I have done or that I still do, uh, whether it be through this show through my website, through the Clarion content, um, you know, through Runaway, uh, please go and follow American Underground, their Twitter, Instagram, check out the website as well. Come by for a tour. I'd love to show you around uh, the community that I get to spend so much time with. Um, I'd really appreciate that. And with that, we're going to get into episode seven.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Buddy Ruski Show. This is episode seven, and I'm very excited to be here with my special guest, Aaron Mandel. Aaron is the editor in chief and founder of Clarion Content, uh, which many of you know uh, I have done uh, numerous projects with, written things, done podcasts. We have the town hall show now with Steve Shul. Uh, so really excited to talk to Aaron about uh, why he started Clarion Content, sort of the, the journey behind um, his life as a journalist, but then also uh, some big picture stuff about Durham and what brought him here and kind of what he sees for the future. Uh, but without further ado, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. I'm super excited to have you interviewing me. I know. It's, it's weird that, uh, you know, I had Katie DeCanto on the last episode, and we realized that I don't think I have ever interviewed her for anything. And I feel like I've known her about as long as I've known you. And it's strange that I would say neither one of us really has been uh, in this position where we're interviewing the other person. So this is uh, another long overdue conversation, I think, and I'm, I'm really excited to have it. Same uh, I, here. Yeah, I'd love to start uh, just with with your background. I know you're not a, a Durham native. Um, True we've story. We talked a little bit about uh, sort of your journey to Durham, but I'd love for you to share with the audience sort of your background, your upbringing, and then how you got to Durham. Rock and roll. Happy to do it. Um, and really, thanks, man, for having me on. I'm stoked. Um, my background, I grew up in Jersey. I, I tell people now that Durham is my home, but I'm definitely from Jersey. And, uh, I think in some ways that was what attracted me to Durham. I would almost say, I, I often anecdotally say that when I moved here, I could end up in Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Cary. I didn't really know the area. I moved here with a woman who was going to grad school all the way back in 1997, the summer of 97, if you can believe Good that. Good year. Good year. <laughs> and uh, we didn't know where we were going to live. We just knew that she was going to law school here. And Durham ended up being where I live. And I feel like some of that is those parallels with New Jersey. You know, I mean, part of it was an era when you rented stuff by fax and phone across the country. Chapel Hill was far too snooty to have us. Maybe Kerry wasn't even blown up in 1997. I don't know. But Durham, we could definitely rent by phone and fax. They were just like, send us the check. Great. We'll take it. And we didn't know about Durham's quote unquote scary reputation. But over the years, I felt like this Durham Jersey parallel of like Manhattan and Connecticut look down on Jersey. Long Island looks down on Jersey. It's the same way like Cary, Raleigh, all these other places look down on Durham and call us unsafe, call us dirty. And I think it's rooted in the same stereotypes, which is to say we're a place of color mm -hmm. and we're a place where what happens in communities of color is often, you know, where it's the factories are put or the dump is put or the power lines are more visible. But to me, also what it had in common with Jersey is that people don't front. There's far less putting on airs in the Durham that I experienced than... You know, the, the way they used to joke about the wine and cheesers and maybe still do it, North Carolina basketball games. I know this is a pro Duke show, so. Speak freely about uh, the, the wine and cheesers at the Carolina games. So so we heard of, you know, that sort of reputation about Chapel Hill and Raleigh was the state capital and, you know, Kerry was the containment area for relocated Yankees. And Durham really felt like 
organically more our kind of place. So we really only assigned a one year lease. She had three years of law school. Um, and we did not end up together. It didn't even really last through her first year of law school, but we Durham did last for me. I moved from one apartment in Durham to another apartment in Durham to in 1999, I ended up buying a house in Durham, which, um, you know, I could have bought a building downtown who knew if I knew it was going to happen then now, perhaps I buy, you know, a whole building downtown for the same price I bought my house, but it was still a great time and a great decision and a place that I felt like I really related to. And you, uh, did you go through the, the public schools in, in Jersey kind of come up through the, in Jersey, I went through the public schools, although, People who know me really well know that my story is actually even longer than Jersey. My dad was first in the Air Force and then worked for American Airlines. So I moved five times before I got to Jersey, which very much shaped who I am as a person. I was born in uh, the Colo- in Denver, Colorado area, moved to Half Moon Bay, California, outside San Francisco, moved to Chicago in first grade. And these are all military bases that you were on it was uh, it was american airlines at that point dallas in third grade then off to jersey in the middle of fourth grade so it was tough because you kept losing your friends and you got a little upset about that but on the other hand i felt like i could talk to anybody i knew places all over the country one of the benefits of working for the airlines back then and i think still is that you can fly standby Mm -hmm. so when i was a little kid i was like flying to places for free like when i lived in california I was like six and my parents would put me on the plane in that era by myself, stortuses take care of you. You'd fly to Newark, New Jersey, and I'd see my grandmother in Jersey and similarly flying across country from O'Hare airport in Chicago and just having lots and lots of transition when I was young. So I did go to the public schools in Jersey, but I also went to public schools in Texas, Chicago and California before that. So you had family in New Jersey this whole time. The, The relocation eventually to New Jersey was not by chance. It was by chance insofar as American Airlines, uh, my dad worked for Sky Chefs, which was their um, people who do the catering for American Airlines, a subsidiary. So he was assigned to manage the LaGuardia Airport flight kitchen. But my grandmother uh, did live in Jersey on my dad's side. And my dad grew up in Jersey. My mother grew up in Philly. But I'm East Coast far more than I'm Southern. I got cousins in North Jersey. I got cousins in the Philadelphia area still. I got cousins in upstate New York and people who've retired to Florida as well. However, I have taken some of that accent and attitude out of my voice. I did keep the don't front psychology of like that Durham and Jersey both have where no BS, we can curse on this. Yeah. Absolutely. Where no bullshit is the way to roll. Like it's just far easier to remember your story if you tell the truth rather than create a a fictional sense of yourself. So I I did keep that Jersey attitude. I I was very confused actually when I first uh, met someone who was demure. In the South is not a characteristic I understood. And I, I think, you know, all of you out there who I've had to apologize to for my Jersey behavior, I just like to apologize again and say, you know, I mean what I say most of the time. I'm trying to be as honest as I can. And I'm sorry if it's offensive, but uh, I hope the truth will set us all free. Well, and you talked earlier about, um, you know, in your experience flying around that um, you ended up talking to a lot of people and became very comfortable um, with communication and i imagine that uh you know lent itself well as you journeyed into uh a life as a as a journalist and as a writer so uh talk to me a little bit about that um uh sort of transition or how you came to become inspired by 
uh, writing and and um, sort of your work with Clarion content. Did you have a, a newspaper at your high school that you worked on? Um, was there any sort of publications in either in New Jersey or when you moved to Durham that uh, sort of hooked you? So the irony is I was not a journalism major at Indiana, which is I went to Indiana University in Bloomington and they have a great journalism school. I had no idea I wanted to be a journalist at that point. I was actually a college debater, a policy debater, and I majored in history and religious studies. I would have never guessed. <laughs> right. Yeah. I do run my mouth. It's not just Jersey to blame for my running my mouth. I'd like to thank the Indiana College debate team as well. Um so I, I didn't know I was going to be a journalist. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Even when I was a very young person, I was writing fiction as early as third and fourth grade, writing short stories, trying to write novels. Um, but I didn't work for the high school paper. I didn't work for the college paper. I just was a very social and interested person. I love storytelling, period. I, I enjoy it. Now in journalism from the interviewing angle, like I love talking, you know, over the years, I've talked with so many interesting people in Durham and I love just digging into their story and who they are and what motivates them and why it works and what didn't work and what have they done and what is their background. But that originally comes from me out of a love of creating fictional characters and wanting to know people. So were there any particular stories that you read or, or movies that you watched uh, growing up that inspired this? Uh, interest in people or in characters? That's a great question. I mean, there are so many books. It's very hard to like go back and say like what's foundational books for oneself. I would certainly say E.B. White and Charlotte's Web was incredibly important to me. And part of what's interesting with that is they were trying to save Wilbur the Pig with words. You know, they were putting words in the web and it was empowering both in that it was a really cool spiritual story and I love the way the animals and Charlotte get along and that still has great meaning to me about how we might get along with our environment and the earth and other creatures but also I think as a little kid even if I didn't catch all of that nuance maybe I just felt it organically I knew they were saving him with words and that seemed really powerful to me a, a really cool idea and that stories were important. And if we created a cool enough story around Wilbur the pig, who could possibly kill him, right? And I hadn't even seen, you know, the whole, uh, what is it, Pulp Fiction about the dog and the pig and the bacon. and uh, Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, right? So I think that was certainly one of the stories that was inspirational to me as a, as a young person. And the founding of the Clarion content really came out of a, a different place. Like, I... When I first got to Durham, my very first job, I worked at the Macaroni Grill, which was still a thing way back then as a waiter. But one of the people at the Macaroni Grill who was a bartender also worked at Foster's Market, my friend Meg DeLuca, who was their uh, catering manager for many years. And she convinced me to come work at Foster's Market. I was their bookkeeper and accountant. And Foster's Market in so many ways is the root of tons and tons of my Durham friendships, my coworkers from that period, the people I met who were customers. I love Sarah Foster and the community she, you know, curated and the what it said about Durham that it had this kind of place like Foster's, even when Foster's was in an area that was isolated, Google Hoff wasn't even there when I worked at Foster's. So, uh, so you don't have a journalism background academically, but your curiosity in stories and in people kind of leads you down this uh, path towards um, exploring that more. 
Um, yeah, and it connects to the Clarion content at the point at which I'm already a writer. I love writing. I'm writing all the time this fiction. I know lots of people in Durham. My friend Mary Kaufman from Foster's um, got me to roommate to be roommates with her brother, Mark Kaufman, a tremendous painter who, if you can ever see his work, I highly recommend it. There is a little bit of it on the Clarion content in the back files. But um, Mark told me, at one point, I was writing the Clarion content almost as a rant space. Like I've always believed as a fiction writer um, that you need other spaces be besides your fiction to write or your fiction becomes kind of whiny and bitchy and autobiographical in a way that I find very irritating. I think a lot of people find irritating. Um, so I needed a rant space and I was I had a blogger and that's what the Clarion content was at first. I was bitching about politics. I was complaining about the Yankees and the Knicks. I was excited about Obama being elected. You know, it, it was me writing about national stories with no one else connected. And my friend, Mark Kaufman, the painter who I know through Mary, who goes back to Foster said to me, well, you know, all of these folks, we know all these folks who are artists and writers and creators. Why don't you write about Durham? And it was like a revelation. I was like, I could write about Durham. I had no idea. And we did know lots of people, you know, Ned Phillips was part of our circle. The fabulous documentarian, you know, is working with Bradley Bethel and Victoria Bouillabaisse these days. And Jayla and Eli, who founded Lila, were part of our circle. And Hammer No More the Fingers and, you know, Duncan. And it just, it was very organic the way the clarion content started i think i went to like the third exhibit at the carrick uh when it was on parish street and it was my friend Catherine howard uh doing these beautiful shrouds with the center for eating disorders and i was like what is this place i can write about this and so many of the early clarion content stories were like that it was just people who someone had recommended to us we vaguely knew i was going to the dirty durham meetings during that era so patrick phelps McEwen was part of my circle and people would say well you gotta go to the party illegal or you gotta see this show or you gotta hear about this thing and dirty did a lot of visual art too in the beginning so julia gartrell um like created a whole house one time out by golden belt back before golden belt was much of a thing that was like an exhibit and you know so i would go to these things and i would get to write about them and in so many ways it felt like writing about people who were already part of my world and it, it was very exciting to me to discover that that was okay yeah and that there was an audience for it i mean i i imagine um when, when what year did you start clarion content officially or if you so can ballpark it the the blogger probably started 12 years ago now, and I would say it's more like 2010, second half of 2010, 2011, when we started writing articles about places in Durham and things that were happening in Durham, stuff like the Carrick, and then, you know, what was going on in the Durham Arts Council. We had a, a, a metafiction story that Katie Childs wrote that was called Searching for Ringside, because the legendary Ringside bar downtown had disappeared by that point. And did your um, inclination to start clearing content come at all from a place where you felt like the media institutions, the newspapers that already existed, the Herald Suns, the NNOs, the Indies, were not capturing some of this stuff that you were seeing at places like the Carrick or some of these art shows through Dirty Durham? Was there a, a void that you felt like the clearing content was filling with those stories? 
Definitely. I mean, I don't want to sound arrogant, but definitely. And anyone who's here knows the truth of what the Herald Sun looked like then and what it looks like now, or what the NNO was doing in terms of devoting coverage to Durham then and now. I mean, it was only the police blotter. You know, there. I don't think that there was a Herald Sun reporter in the Carrick in the first couple of years, for sure, let alone who had any idea what was happening at the Pinhook or, you know, in Dirty Durham meetings or... You know, that runaway, you know, we, you're a runaway veteran. We interviewed Gabe as he was founding Runaway. Like, Runaway had no physical space. He was just making the transition from this terrific illustration and work he had done at Syracuse and these shows he was doing in New York to like, I need to found some other kind of company. Maybe I'll sell t shirts and fashion items because my friends can't afford these $1,000 paintings, you know, and we were on the ground in a way that was organic. It wasn't like we were like, man, the Herald Sun is doing a shitty job. We were like, wow, look at what our friends and these terrific creators are doing in Durham. Someone has to shout about that. Someone has to cover it. I wish I had had the entrepreneurial experience, you know, then that I've seen happen now. There was an American underground. It wasn't a thing. And nobody coached me about how it might make money or even how to think about how it should make money. So I, I sort of missed that part of the equation, but the story part was great. And and it's tough. I mean, I imagine that for a lot of people that start media projects that it doesn't come from a place of wanting to make money. There's a story that right. they want to tell and that is the driving force right. behind it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, for it to survive, obviously it has to, um, you know, there has to be, revenue that comes in that you can pay staffers and um even with the increased technology available to do things you know through social everybody has a iphone now or a smartphone where you can take the photo blog you know do everything from that device it's still um you know there still has to be resources put into it for it to be robust um but i, I think that's a place that um you and i when i first met and we were talking about sort of the early blog posts that I was doing where we really aligned is that we were, we found ourselves in these circles where it's like, wow, all of our friends do all this cool shit. Why why aren't people talking about it? And um, I think around the time that uh, I I first started writing and and approached you about wanting to blog for clearing content, I had actually moved in with John and Eli from Lila. And that was... Right, you were living in the Anderson Street house, right? And that was a, a a time where I felt like really was the, um, you know, and obviously my history in Durham limits my ability to, to understand the full scope of everything that's happened in, in downtown. And there are folks, you know, a generation above me that'll talk about places like Ringside that I don't have a perspective on. But I do really feel like that 2010 era with Dirty Durham and Party Illegal, with uh, Lila and Hammer and the Beast and Runaway and early Pinhook and you know the genesis and of Motorco exactly and a and lot full of steam being founded right. like and Shed Letter Press. I think you could go through and look. You know Parker and Otis's founding kind of dates to that era. I think you're absolutely right that the cultural momentum was amazing. And when somebody, maybe me, maybe you, maybe somebody else, writes the book of how Durham parallels. Austin, Seattle, Brooklyn. I think those are some of the cultural prime movers we'll be talking about. Yeah, I, from the little, um, and and there's a book out now, I think it came out a couple of years ago, on 
uh, the Rolling Stone, and I listened to a podcast a few months ago um, with one of the uh, early editors about the Rolling Stone and sort of it coming from a similar place of like, wow, I'm, I'm in this environment and all this crazy stuff is happening with, you know, uh, like war protests and rock and roll and all this, this collision of culture. And, and no one seems to be aware of what's happening. And granted, this was in the, you know, 60s and 70s. It's a, the, the media landscape and uh, was very different than, you know, no internet sort of like mass media didn't really exist in the way it does now. But it, it does parallel in that there was this void, there wasn't a voice being given to this really important culture that ultimately, in, in my biased opinion, uh, you know, really shaped Durham into what it is now. Definitely. Obviously, there are things like um, Deepak and American Tobacco Campus and other, you know, larger developments that sure, sort of but think like what the but, art of cool was like at the beginning. We interviewed Sicily like right before the first Art of right. Cool, you and I. And, you know, I sat in the first Art of Cool focus group meeting. We covered the first Durham Hip Hop Summit, you know. We talked to Tune and Law in that era. We talked to De Facto Thespian. And, like, these people were the culture makers that made Durham cool. You know, there was a... Obviously, we all know there was a point when no one lived in downtown, but it wasn't just no one lived in downtown. People shit on Durham culture repeatedly and said there was no Durham culture. And that is, you know, patently unfair to Haytai and things that Dasana Hanu was already doing and unfair to the Hillside Marching Band and unfair to the Bimbe Festival. And we've had great culture for a long time. But there was also a point where downtown was so dead, they moved Centerfest into a parking lot and stopped blocking off downtown. Downtown. And you and I and Eli McDuffie and Jeremy Rist were part of the people who went to Sherry DeVries and Margaret DeMott and the Durham Arts Council people and said, this is ridiculous. Why don't you book the really good bands and the great culture we have around here and blow this the hell back up? You see what's going on with the Carrick and the Pleiades and these places? And, you know, they had a year of focus groups and then they moved it back into downtown. And it's far, far too arrogant to think that, you know, we deserve credit for that. We were just part of the conversation of people who were like, look at all this great culture around us. Look what, you know, Queen Please is doing. Look what Ariely is doing at Coco and, you know, Leon are doing with Coco Cinnamon. I mean, Daisy Cakes was a thing in that era. You know, I, I remember sitting with the Pie Pushers, Mike and Becky, in their first, you know, early, early financial meetings when they were conceiving of the truck and getting the trailer done in Alabama. And I, I think... You know, it was just incredibly inspirational to be around all these people. And I think there's really something, too, to the way we inspired each other. You know, we would look around the room and be like, damn, look at what that person's doing. Damn, Kim's opening the pinhook. That's so brave. Wasn't she just a bartender like weeks ago? How did, you know, and so much of that vibe. I mean, I remember when the Federal opened. Yeah, yeah, that I think the Federal, uh, James Joyce, sort of that block of Brightleaf Square is like, right before my sort of time in downtown Durham. There are people that speak very fondly of uh, the federal specifically uh, that I think are a generation right above me where the yep. federal was the uh, sort of hub for a lot of people. And definitely folks like, um, you know, Jay Kuchma and Charlotte and um, man, I, I really, I haven't, yet found 
uh, a character in Durham that can replace what Jay Kuchma meant to this community. I, I don't oh, know yeah. if he listens to this show, but um, but I, if somebody is listening that can, I mean, I guess I could send it to Jay myself, but I just, I, I he was somebody talking about inspiration For very sure. early on uh, when he, when Tommy finally moved in with us over at the Anderson house and he was playing with Jay and they would have rehearsals at the house. And that for those me rehearsals, man, like how lucky are you to get to sit there and hear those rehearsals? Yeah. Well, and the same thing for Lila as well. You know, I, that living in that house, I think really is what in, inspired me to take that next level as a writer to your point about being inspired and being around cool people and getting to see the behind the scenes and, um, see how hard people were working too. Yeah. That was very impressive to me. I mean, I, I have to say I took great inspiration from Laura Ritchie and how hard she worked at the Carrick. I remember, you know, months would go by and she wouldn't take any days off. Like this is a very old Carrick story. And I don't know how many people even know it, but I think it was maybe during their third year. Oh, and I'm going to blank on the person's name who pulled the prank. But you know the Carrick would let you like do all the setup yourself? Like you had to stage it yourself. If you're Gabe, you know, and you're doing your art show, you have to bang the nails into the wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of thing. So this um, fella who lived next door to me and Mark Kaufman, who was also an artist, had pitched and that was back before they had a big committee reviewing what all the exhibitions were going to be in before it was super duper competitive and he kind of had this like really secretive project and you know he wasn't going to tell Laura about exactly how he was going to stage it and he was an artist he, he built beautiful frames and stuff and the whole project was when the Carrick finally gave him the keys he locked it and told Laura to take like the next like five days off or something and like I think she kind of freaked out a little bit, but it was also just emblematic of this guy being like, you never take any time off. He had gone to grad school with her, undergrad with her at Carolina for art. And that's how hard she was working. She had just gone years where it seemed like she took no days off. And I feel like, you know, when Arelli and Leon went from bike coffee, they founded Coco Cinnamon on a bike to where they are now and how hard they worked and when i would go to those dirty durham meetings and you know you would see patrick and a cast of you know five or six other people you know put together a great party illegal and a summer music festival and you'd be like where's the team of no they're doing all the sound they're figuring out the lighting they're raising the money and i think just seeing how hard everybody was working was fucking great it was really inspiring as a writer yeah and that really speaks to i think what separates durham um you know i haven't done a, a whole ton of traveling in my young life but um from the stories that i've heard from folks and from people like that that have lived elsewhere and then moved to durham and can excuse me see this canvas this blank canvas for them to really paint their masterpiece on and um, and there was a camaraderie too. There was Definitely. something that Katie talked about as well. She, uh, the analogy she used was, uh, like all of us being in grad school together at the same time, there was this, uh, real drive to be successful, but then also a real drive to see other people be successful. And, totally true. You know, we really benefited, um, you know, the, the early days that I started working with Gabe, where there was a, um, you know, there was layering to the, uh, 
the collaboration that everyone was doing. So we do a, a show, you know, a, a release show at um, at Mercury Studio, and and Katie would let us use the space, and then we'd set up shop there. And uh, you'd bring in Raj Bunyang to do like screening, right. and like you know, Gabe would talk the PBR rep into giving us free beer, and it would just be like. Yeah, it was collaborative over competitive. Yeah, and it and it really helped build this uh, density for the the scene that to take another's you know go up a level. And it wasn't uh, eventually it wasn't just artists supporting artists. We all started to get a fan base outside of that, and were able to to grow in different ways. So, I, excuse me, I really appreciate that aspect of it, and I I wonder, and, and I would love to to spend some time thinking about this, both from a media standpoint, but then also just from a, a cultural standpoint in Durham. I, I wonder if that can continue given the the landscape that exists now. You know, there are certainly more resources um, than, than there used to be in downtown Durham. Obviously it looks a lot different than when, uh, you know, when we were first sort of covering everything. Um, so there's, there's more, spaces maybe there's more you know money in the environment uh but it doesn't necessarily mean that there are more spaces for weird art shows or there's more money for um you know upstart clothing companies or jazz festivals or, or art galleries or whatever it may be so um you know and the same can be said for for media as well i uh, you know there were hundreds of layoffs uh, last week with Vice and BuzzFeed and some of these other big major publications. And we all know that for years, if not decades, um, you know, local media newspapers have been losing their uh, foothold uh, in the community. And so I just wonder about, uh, you know, we talk a lot about sort of grassroots uh, movements in this country, but I wonder if it's still possible in Durham to have uh, sort of grassroots movement that has any kind of momentum. Yeah, it, it's very tough for me to say yes. I mean, I think if people go to the Clarion Content website right now, they'll see we're as inactive as we've been in, you know, years, maybe since the beginning. And very much that's financial. You know, we, we moved to a model at some point, probably five, six, seven years ago now, where we started paying all first the photographers and then all the writers and then, you know, for podcasting. And we were trying to pay everybody and all of our content creators. And we wanted to still stick with that, but we could not, you know, we're no different than anybody else. We have not figured out the answer for local media. I, I had hoped that we could get to almost like a Patreon style mm -hmm. mar model where we had sustainers like the way the care Act did, you know, zero commission and sustainers here will provide you the news. And I think in some ways we push the other newsmakers in town to do a better job of covering Durham. And in some ways Durham just did so well, it was impossible to ignore, but yeah, we, have, we did not find a solution to the revenue problem. And in some ways, you know, the Clarion content may never be as active as it once was. I've been writing for Durham Magazine and I see what they're doing. And I think Amanda McLaren, their editor, does an excellent job covering culture. Now, it's tricky. They can't do the police blotter and, you know, do investigative or political reporting. And the indie has a very complicated situation of its own because they have to cover Raleigh and they have to cover Chapel Hill and they have to cover Hillsborough. 
So I don't know. I mean, it is a complicated time for local media. And if you are a breakout artist right now, a young hip hop artist, I don't know who's covering you. And I don't know who's writing about the new shows at the Carrack right now. And I do know that it's been very hard. The Clarion Contents lost a lot of money over the years paying people to cover these things. And it's been a tremendous passion project. But at some point also, absent a real financial model, you know, it's very difficult. Yeah, and, and really, um, you know, I wonder what that does for for the community at large to not have that voice on the ground level. Uh, the analogy that I've heard you often use is, you know, if the indie is the time, the New York Times, then the Clarion content is the village voice for Durham. And, um, you know, without that voice to speak to these grassroots movements, uh, you know, political culture uh, or whatever, then they often just get lost in the the chaos of everything that's happening. And it's sad too, because there's so many great things happening. You know, I am actually sitting on a couple of really cool pieces about events that happened at Durham Fruit, things that happened during the Click Photography Festival. Um, I've got an article on the uh, Durham Public Schools Foundation, which I know you're very familiar with, uh, that I'd love to publish. And in all cases, there's a certain amount of pressure because I know as soon as I publish that, we got to cut a check to the person who wrote it. And while I want to do that, we don't get in enough in Patreon sustainer contribu contributions a month to cover the cost of paying for several articles. Yeah. And, and do, I mean, do you think that is a, an attention problem to some degree where people Definitely. are just, it's, it's hard for them to conceive donating to any one institution because they know that they can get it for free somewhere else or they can follow somebody for free on Instagram that, you know, they can get, even if it's 60% of that same information, then, you know, it's like, well, I'm already on Instagram. You know, it's or even it's just a cool photo about that information. Right. Like I love some of what Durham's public institutions, like I think it's the Durham Convention and Visitors Bureau has a really great Instagram account. Mm -hmm. Discover Durham, is that yep. them? Yeah. I mean, the photographer who does that does a great job and takes really cool pictures. And, you know, I mean, I, I just, I think that there's a psychology that media could or should be free in America. I mean, who do you know pays 99 cents a month for the New York Times, you know, or the LA Times, or who still subscribes to the New Yorker or the Economist? And these people are doing great work, great, important journalism. And instead, we've been, I think, psychologized by network TV to think that you can just flip on the television and TV is free. And what we've learned, especially in light of the last presidential election, is actually that the cost is in advertising. And the cost of advertising is in the decay to our society by having advertising, because advertising is essentially paid lying. Yeah, oh, and, and even if it's not... Um you know, advertising in the sense that it's, uh, you know, uh, a spot like a TV ad spot or, uh, you know, six by eight in the newspaper, there is some uh, corporate institution with an ulterior motive that is contributing financially to the, um, to, you know, to the output of the work of that journalistic institution. And so it's, it's compromised. And, Inevitable. and, um, you know, our, our mutual friend Jeremy Rist would be very pleased to hear you um, say all this about sort of the, um, you know, what corporate money can do to uh, the voice of, of journalism. I think you're absolutely right that because we've been conditioned to think that 
journalism and media is free, that there's some there's something out there that I can get for free that it doesn't have value. And we, we really have to sort of con- recondition ourselves to understand that, you know, you, you pay for the quality that you get. And if you get it for free, it's probably not great quality. Or someone was exploited, exploited to make it free. And I'm hopeful about the Patreon model, but just to talk about that whole idea of being exploited to make it for free, think of like graphic design contests. Like I know you're up on this kind of thing. I know Monica Byrne and uh, I think Rebecca Miel, if I'm saying her name right, are giving the city of Durham a bunch of hard time about this. I've seen it over the ABCD listserv where multiple times the city has sponsored graphic design contests, which essentially require the person doing the submission to a quote unquote contest to do all the work that would be required for the actual project itself. And then we're only going to pick one out of every hundred or 200 people who submitted it and pay that one person and everyone else's work. They had to do it for free. They got nothing. And I think, you know, there's something in this idea of racing to the cheapest, racing to the bottom, that is inherently poisonous to our culture. And we have to remember, like you said, that quality work should be paid for. And maybe the Patreon model does help us and we can find a way around it. But it's it's tough times in journalism and, and tough times in art and tough times in the music industry. And it seems like that's a few too many things to have tough times for it to be a coincidence. Yeah, and they all sort of center around... Um art or just um yeah creative product yeah exactly it's um you know there's people don't really think about journalism and and media as a as a good in the way that they think about like going to the grocery store and buying something or buying a a car or um you know a new computer or whatever a new iphone whatever try telling a car salesman well i'll pay for that with exposure you give me the brand new mercedes I'll drive it around for free. Other people will buy Mercedes exposure. That's what they try and sell journalists and photographers right for the Huffington Post. We're not going to pay you anything, but people will see your byline and that'll probably get you jobs where you make some money. Or it'll get you Twitter and Instagram followers and those will somehow You can certainly eat your Twitter follower. Right. No, no, you can't actually buy groceries with Twitter followers. Um, Maybe one Not that we don't love Twitter. Yeah. Uh, And I don't actually want to turn my Twitter feed though, you know, on a side conversation into an advertisement. I don't want to sell my tweets as like, all right, well, you give me enough money and I'll say that your art show was awesome and people should buy it. Like, that's the whole I like Durham because it is no bullshit. I don't want to get into that kind of fronting. I don't want the distinction between advertising and journalism to collapse even further. When it's that same, um, you know, corporate sort of uh, meddling that we talked about before, just in a uh, in a different way with influencers on social media, I, I've been thinking a lot about this and, you know, trying to find the balance between being, you know, promoting your work because you think it's good work, uh, but not selling yourself at, and um, sort of becoming a human billboard uh, to to accomplish that goal. And so it's so hard. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I feel especially for musicians and visual artists like who does write about your show or your new album or your new mixtape or, you know, your visual show, your art show, your sculpture. And without anyone writing about it, how do you spread the word without sounding like a shill? Well, and, and two, you, you, um, you know, because 
money is tight and a lot of it's driven by clicks and views and things like that, um, you know, it, it can distort what you actually say about the things too. You know, you're, you're, you're thinking about the most viral, the viral ability of, of the content you're right. creating. And so um, you may make certain decisions about the content you're making based on that and not making something purely, whether it's the art you're creating or as a writer, the critique that you're making about the art or, or uh, you know, our politicians or whatever it is that you might be doing. Um, there is... Uh, Certainly our politicians change their speech based on what they think campaign contributions will be and how they think it'll play. And the media responds as Absolutely. well. You know, the headlines that they write and the way that they choose to frame conversations and... Um, so I, it, it's it's really really complicated. I certainly don't have an answer. And um, it's, well, I it think feels awareness like no does, is, is a lot. Yeah, no one. Yeah. I don't think anyone necessarily does. But awareness is what's super important. The further we stick our head in the sand and say that money isn't influencing the outcome, that capitalism isn't influencing the outcomes, the worse off we are. The more we expose the methodologies of how these things happen and the processes of how these things happen then the more opportunity we have to resist. And it's not new. I mean, the old joke about um, songs, musical songs on the radio used to be about how they have to cut it down to 305. You know, you can't have radio airplay. Like nobody would play Bohemian Rhapsody or, you know, Stairway to Heaven. It was too long. So this is not a new problem that the creative community has been shaped by the dollar. But I think perhaps globalism, perhaps the internet... Um, international capital has made it even worse by driving the price down you know those graphic design contests what if you're competing against someone in china you know who is paying rent you know in western china and you're trying to pay rent not even in los angeles but in durham yeah uh oh that's opening yeah it's weighty it's a pandora's <laughs> box but I, I do think awareness and awareness of it in media and you know, that's the root. That's the start. Kids today are aware of all kinds of things that we had no sense of the connection. What are you hoping for um, from Durham in the next five to 10 years based on the trajectory that you see it on now? What, not only what are you hoping for, but, um, you know, we, we do have a show with with Steve Shule, the current mayor of, of Durham. Love that um, guy. We He's a, a very... Uh, very nice man and very, beats with his heart. Yeah. Heart in all the time. What more could you ask for from your politician? So I think that, and that's true throughout, um, you know, the, the city council, true, I would say. True. And um, so I, I do think that there is leadership throughout Durham that have uh, good intentions, but obviously there are forces at play within Durham and then also outside of Durham that can dictate uh, a lot of where Durham goes. But you know, short of, sort of waving a magic wand and, and getting your wish, what what would you hope to see from Durham as a community, you know, going forward in the next few years? Well, you can't wave the magic wand. You're certainly right about that. Steve, the mayor, is always telling us about the limits of his power based on the North Carolina legislature and also based on the city manager. So I think it's facetious to wait around for politicians to solve the problems for us. And I think Durham has issues. I mean, I love what the Durham Public Schools Foundation is doing. I think for a very long time, when people have knocked Durham 
and knocked our public schools. It's one of been been one of the few things where we what can we say? You know, we've had a lot of great products of our public schools and a lot of great students, but we've also failed a lot of students. We've had classrooms that have too many kids and that are dangerous and we've had a you know a high school suspension to prison pipeline and the kind of problems lots of big cities suffer so i think one of the things i would really like to see is true equality in the durham public schools and a real consciousness of send your kid to public school because we all fucking know that plenty of rich people in durham are like well the public schools suck but my kid goes to durham academy so you don't have to worry about it or my kid goes to carolina friends or my kid goes to you know i don't know one of those you know schools out in raleigh or carrier whatever or one of the charter schools even. right yeah, so, and, and that's not an attack on those schools. Durham Academy is a great school and they're doing great things. And, you know, Carolina Friends, I love the psychology behind the Quaker school, but public schools is part of how we're all in it together. And I think you said earlier, and I certainly agree that that collaborative over competitive thing was one of the things that really made Durham special, that really made Durham different culturally, creatively. It was something that attracted people to us. And, and I think the schools are a great place to start. I think, you know, there's a lot of other issues. There's serious gun, gang, drug violence problems in Durham right now. And nobody wants to talk about it, least of all the city manager and the police chief. But I think, you know, as you and I have talked about in the past, those are not a silo. Those are related to school problems. Those are related nutritional problems and things like, you know, food deserts and hope for jobs. And it's a bucket of things that we can't just say, well, I hope Steve Shule and Jillian Johnson and Charlie Reese just all solved this for us. You know, our city council and our mayor are individuals like us. So I think models like the Durham Public Schools Foundation, ways for us to collectively contribute. People who are thinking about the larger psychology, I've been incredibly impressed with American Underground over the last three, four, five years, thinking about how can they be a minority-friendly startup hub? How can they have more women in leadership? How can they work with you know their parent, I guess, capital broadcasting mm-hmm. to, to do things that are more inclusive? And I think... There are lots of people whose hearts are in the right place in Durham. So I hope that we can lead with our hearts and have that collaborative psychology and not be frustrated by the fact that there is a huge influx of money and we're really popular and we're suddenly the bell of the ball. I think what would be disastrous is for us to build a bunch of really fancy things that aren't used by a large segment of our population and to kind of ignore that segment of the population. Shoulder shrug, no other city in America can solve it. So how are we different than Baltimore, Philadelphia, Detroit? Too bad. Those people must just suck. No, that's ridiculous, untrue, and a harm to ourselves and a harm to our society in the long run. So there was a point close to that 2010, 11, 12 year where I thought maybe Durham would be a model for larger America of collaboration and cooperation of harmony and justice. And I don't know, I'm hopeful, but you know, what do the Fuji say? Money breaks groups up like the five heartbeats. <laughs> I feel like it makes me want to really tricky. revisit uh, that album today. Might have to add that to the uh, the old Spotify queue nice. after the recording of this show. Uh, before I let you go, uh, I would love for you to share uh, one lesson or one piece of advice that uh, or tidbit of knowledge that you've gained uh, over your time working with the Clarion content, being here in Durham, and just um, you know for the aspiring 
storytellers and, and journalists um, and really just go-getters uh, out there, what's um, something that you could pass along to them? I would say if you're not prepared to serve, you're not prepared to lead. And I think it's really important. Laura and the, Richie and the Carrack, they moved the chairs around. They filled the water glasses. They found somebody to donate the food. You and I, um, when we were doing um, the, and Heather Cook, when we were doing the mayor up forums and getting mayoral candidates to speak, we didn't have a staff putting out chairs for us. We put out the chairs. I went, I have been to commercial light and sound, shout out on Guest Road to rent microphones and lights so many times over the years. There's so many projects. And I think, that it's really important to remember that it's okay to be a grunt and that you need to be a grunt. And it's not just humping around the idea of like, I'm just going to write constantly. And I, I do like the idea. If you're a writer, if you're a creator, dwell in your work. I believe in that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, but also don't be like, oh, I'm, well, who's going to set up the chairs? Who's going to sweep the floor? How's this going to happen? Sometimes you are the guy who sets up the chairs and sweeps the floor and makes it all happen. And the reward is in the outcome of the event. You know, the way the Dirty Durham people handled sound and lighting, the way the pinhook has done that for years. I mean, I know Motorco similarly is a family business in a lot of ways. And, you know, mops the floor at the end of the night at Motorco. There's not some magical guest service that comes in from out of town to do it. That's somebody you know, and probably someone who you think of as a great artist or a creator or see in another vein. So if you're not prepared to serve, you're not prepared to lead. And I think that there's a, a level at which that starts out very personally. My old life coach used to say, um, what Bonnie Cohen, who I love dearly and miss dearly, used to say, who also wrote for the Clarion Content, a great advice column for a long time, that an ashram and an army both start their day by making their bed. And it's that very simple idea of service and bringing order to your own personal space. And what could be more different than a pacifist monk and a conquering army yet it's, it's be prepared to serve bring that order to your personal space so that you can have clarity and room to have those higher level thoughts and those higher level discussions and i think it's a lesson i've learned the hard way too in some ways where i did not figure out enough of the basics of the clarion content first i just tried to jump in and be like look at this cool art show and look at this great band and let's write about this and that and you know i was doing all the candy parts and not enough eating the veggies and thinking about the rest of my diet. And I think that's part of why it's been financially difficult. So be prepared to serve. Thank you so much. Uh, that's a, a great um, philosophy to, to leave this conversation on. Uh, Aaron, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the show. Again, it's been a long time coming and I, I hope we get to do it again. There's so many things uh, that we didn't cover that I would love to and we'll certainly um, you know, find their way into other content that we end up working on together, uh, whether it be this show or the town hall or other pieces on clearing content or uh, more mayoral forums in the future. So uh, thanks again uh, for being on the show and, and for all that you do for the community uh, with the clearing content and otherwise. Uh, this has been episode seven. Thank of, you, Justin. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, episode seven of the Buddy Ruski Show. Uh, again, you can always find this on the website, buddyruski.com. Uh, you can now now find it uh, on anywhere that you stream podcasts, so Spotify, Apple Music, all that good stuff. 
Um, you can also check out uh, the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com backslash Buddy Ruski. Uh, these go up on that site um, as well. And if you would like to become a sustainer uh, of this show or the Clarion content, you should do that as well. Um, because Media we need needs support. your support. Exactly. Media needs your support. Exactly. Newsflash. You could put that on repeat uh, in this show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Media needs your support. Thanks again, uh, everybody, for listening, uh, and we'll see you next time. Peace.